Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World War II Nation podcast. Having recently returned from the Ardennes, Ross and I were very keen to learn more about Hitler's last throw of the dice in December 1944. So over the course of the next few episodes, we'll be talking about the Battle of the Bulge with British military historian and author Dr Peter Caddick-Adams. In this first part, we discuss the planning behind the Ardennes Offensive, why Hitler chose this region for this and its objectives, as well as looking at the importance of fuel, the impact of the MP44, German drug use during this period, and also a secret plot for a German POW breakout in Britain. So where and how did your interest in the Battle of the Bulge first begin and what was it that attracted you to studying this particular battlefield? I first went to the Ardennes region in the late 1970s with friends of mine who were much older who restored Second World War military vehicles and they used to take them back to uh, where they'd served. I went with them and the remarkable thing that struck me was poking around in the forests we found plenty of debris from the Second World War there. In fact, when I tripped over a whole belt of German machine gun ammunition, it was as though the battle had finished yesterday. So at the back of my mind was always the fact that here is a a battlefield that has never really healed uh, and returning to it time and time again, because the forests had never been developed, the buildings had never really been repaired because there wasn't enough money in the whole of the Ardennes region, it's still quite poor. Uh, here was somewhere that was as close to 1944 as it was possible to get. And to a certain extent, that's still the case today. You can match the old black and white photographs with the present day buildings. And ultimately, the terrain, the ground never lies. So if you walk the ground today, you instantly get a feel of what it was like. So what were the reasons behind Hitler's decision to pick the Ardennes for his final throw of the dice? And what did he hope to achieve with this offensive? By the autumn of 1944, the Germans have lost Normandy. Um, Hitler has always had grand designs of a major counter-offensive against the Allies to be launched with a huge degree of secrecy and surprise. And he picks the Ardennes because that's the area that the Germans did so well in, in 1940. And his star general, Rommel, leads his panzer division through the Ardennes in three days. And essentially, Hitler says, right, we want a rerun of this. Uh, we'll do it in two days, forgetting that this will be midwinter rather than midsummer and all the rest of it. But he's trying to do 1940 all over again. He's suspicious of his own army after the July bomb plot. So a lot of the starring roles will now be assigned to the SS who aren't necessarily better soldiers. Uh, And he forgets that if you're going to use poor weather to shut off the Allied air forces to allow your troops to manoeuvre on the ground free of interference, that poor weather is also going to slow you down on the ground in terms of fog and snow. And if you're picking a region where the roads are pretty narrow and winding, like the Ardennes, then if you're operating in snowy conditions, and you're short of fuel, that's going to exacerbate that even more. When we look at the objectives that Hitler has in mind for the Ardennes, they're all over the place. 
Um, the accepted reason that Hitler gives is he wants to split the Allied armies in two. So you've got the British and Canadians on one side and the Americans on the other. And he's going to split them in two by uh, zooming out of the Ardennes area in a, another blitzkrieg assault and seizing the port of Antwerp. What Hitler's also trying to do is shatter the Allied coalition against him. So he thinks that a, a lightning attack coming out of nowhere will cause so much friction amongst the Allies, they will squabble amongst themselves as to whose fault this was, and the, the coalition ranged against him will be shattered. The, the tactical objective is to seize the port of Antwerp. Why? That's the Allied main logistics hub. So all the, all the supplies that keep the Allied armies in the field are now coming into Antwerp. If you can seize that, then the Allied armies won't have any more ammunition, food and all the rest of it, and they will grind to a halt. Now, if we take a, a look at that, it makes no sense. The Allies are never going to fall out and squabble because of a, a German attack that's come from nowhere. Um, and I think that's a reflection of Hitler's own idea of coalitions, which is he's always going to be the dominant partner and will always squabble with his uh, other coalition partners. And he's only really got the only really had the Italians. So his understanding that the Allied coalition is frail only reflects his mentality of how he's treated coalition partners in the past. In fact, the Allied coalition is extremely strong uh, and it's been built up through a period of years, not months. Um, it encompasses huge numbers of staff officers and we're running to tens of thousands who are involved in the planning, who are great mates with each other. Eisenhower is a great diplomat and understands including other nations. So the coalition isn't going to shatter. And the final point about um, Hitler's tactical ob objective of trying to get to Antwerp. A few months earlier, there's been the Battle of Arnhem, where the Allies have been trying to push through German lines uh, with air cover, and they couldn't get to Arnhem uh, as part of Operation Market Garden, 60 miles away, in the same sort of time period that Hitler is allowing for the Battle of the Bulge. So if the Allies, with overwhelming resources, in good weather and air cover, can't manage 60 miles in Operation Market Garden to get to Arnhem. How on earth is Hitler, in poor weather, with poor resources and no air cover, going to manage to get 120 miles to Antwerp in the same sort of time frame? And it absolutely doesn't stack up. So my conclusion is that the Ardennes battle had no chance of success right from the word go, and there's only one person who believes it does, and that's it. Was there a certain mythological connection for this area for Hitler, and did this influence his decision to go ahead with the offensive here? What's really interesting about the Battle of the Bulge is, in Hitler's mind, it's not just a conventional Second World War battle. He's reaching, I think, into the deep past. One of the things about the Bulge is it's launched against the protests of every single general uh, in the Third Reich. And one of the reasons, I think, is deep in Hitler's psyche, he loves the operas of Wagner. Uh, and even in Mein Kampf, he says that Wagner provided the inspiration for him to go into politics in the first place. A lot of the Wagnerian operas take place in woods and forests. 
uh, and in his mind and in German mythology, this is where young men go to be tested and they have to meet some kind of ogre, monster, dark force to be tested and come out shining, as it were. Uh, and so the Ardennes Forest provides a perfect metaphor for this. Uh, it exactly replicates what a lot of the German Teutonic myths and legends are all about. Siegfried going into the forest. What's the dragon? It's the American military machine of 1944. So this is the best way of putting the German folk into the forest uh, and seeing whether they survive in the, the final iteration. And Hitler's belief is that they are you know, more powerful, more convinced, more convicted than they ever have been before. And this is where his young people will thrive against this huge threat that the American war machine represents. Hitler also goes back to the days of the Romans and the, the Rhine and the forest just beyond it represent the sort of limit of Roman power uh, and, and the Roman Empire. And it stops there because the Romans uh, meet a great big setback in AD 9 uh, when their foremost general is attacked by German auxiliaries who have formerly been good Romans. And they turn the tables on the Roman army, destroy them in the depths of the woods. And recent archaeology has told us where that has happened. But Hitler always knew the myths of the German people turning the tables on the Romans 2000 years ago. And so the Ardennes battle, I think, also is reflecting the first hero, really, of, of German military history. When did planning for this last ditch gamble begin and how many people were actually involved in this? If we're talking about the planning of the bulge, the jury is really out as to when the seeds uh, begin to be sown. If you look at the record and you understand Hitler's mind, there's an argue, argument that you can make that Hitler is already preparing the ground even before the Battle of Normandy is over in mid-August 1944. He certainly goes to the chief German historian on the Wehrmacht uh, staff and says, can you pull out the plans for 1940 where we did so well? We need to have a look at them again. And that's even before the army has surrendered in Normandy. So there's a certain element uh, to sort of say he expects the Germans to be pushed all the way back to the frontier defences, the Siegfried line, and from there he will launch a great counter-assault. That sort of makes sense. Um, of course, fates and, and, and events overtake these plans. The Germans are pushed back uh, faster than perhaps the, the Hitler expects. Um, the Germans have also got to fight on the Eastern Front. Hitler keeps these plans to himself for as long as possible and in fact far too long. The plan is fatally um, flawed because those attacking armies and attacking units aren't told that they're going into the Ardennes battle until literally days before. They've no time to prepare, to recce the ground, to train their troops adequately. They're simply deployed in the Ardennes region, they think to defend it against the inevitable allied assault, and in fact they're going into the attack. Now they have no idea about that. So the reason why Hitler achieves great secrecy is because he doesn't tell anyone and all those people who need to know that the attack is about to take place. So that's how he achieves secrecy. It's at the expense of training and preparation. And that's going to fatally compromise the Battle of the Bulge. Because if you don't have the right maps, you don't have the right training, 
uh, how can you possibly succeed on ground that you haven't wrecked beforehand? Um, you know, there's the classic military philosophy is you can't expect to achieve on operations what you haven't prepared for in training beforehand. And no one from the Air Force, who are to play a role, down to the tanks, down to the infantry, have prepared in any way at all. But that's how he, Hitler keeps it secret. Assuming the successful capture of the port of Antwerp, were any form of plans in place for the campaign by the Germans beyond this point? If we look at Hitler's objectives, capturing the port of Antwerp, shattering the Allied coalition, where's this going to go? There's no evidence that it's a properly thought through military campaign. The only detailed parts of the orders are get to the River Meuse. How they're going to get from the River Meuse to Antwerp isn't detailed. What happens after Antwerp, goodness only knows, there aren't any plans there at all. So it, it's half-baked at the very best. But, but what are you going to do when you get to Antwerp? How are you going to protect your line of supply back to the Third Reich? What happens when the skies eventually clear and the Allied Air Force are back in business? I mean, there's no planning for that at all. So Antwerp is pie in the sky. What happens afterwards? Inevitably, it's going to be retaken by the Allies. I mean, it can, it, so from that point of view, it, it's nonsensical to begin with. And even its limited, modest objectives are completely unobtainable. One thing that I was shocked to read in your book, there'd actually been a secret plot for German POWs in Britain to attempt to break out and march on London. What happened with this? The Germans are very good at thinking outside the box. And one of the many ideas that they come up with to help the bulge along um, is to make contact with German prisoners of war in Britain, particularly the more fanatical SS ones who are at various collecting places in the south of England and encourage them to break out and march on London. And coded letters are sent for them to plan to break out from various places together, seize local weapons, uh, arms, even tanks from local military depots, uh, and then march on London. Inevitably, they're going to be rounded up and they're going to be defeated. But if you can deflect Allied attention from the Ardennes, call back lots of ready troops and equipment, because you've got to do something about these uh, escaped prisoners of war, then that's going to add to the confusion and also pull troops back from the front. It's a very, very clever idea. Um, we compromise it. We understand what's going to happen because we intercept what's going on. But it's a very, very nice edge to launching a, a, a major assault. Very clever and insightful of the Germans. And we're just very lucky that we understand what's about to happen just before. How did the Allies fail to pick up on the, this massive concentration of men and equipment during its build-up? Surely it was very hard to hide the movement of over 200,000 men, horses and equipment and over 600 tanks. I think the biggest lesson we learn after the Battle of the Bulge is how on earth were we caught out? How did the Germans manage to, to do this without any inkling beforehand? Uh, there are two aspects to this. First, the Germans are very good at secrecy because Hitler hardly tells anyone what's going on. Very few people are able to let the secret out. Um, there are all sorts of measures like only moving by night. Um, putting straw down on the road so you don't transmit any noise, 
Um, very few people actually know what's going on. The second half is the Allies are expecting the Germans to reinforce the front along the, the line of the River Rhine and the Siegfried Line, because it's obvious that we're about to assault Germany, and therefore they would expect the troop densities to thicken where they expect an attack. So to a certain extent, the Germans are, move, are, are perf performing and manoeuvring in exactly the way the Allies expect. But we're expecting a defensive uh, operation rather than an offensive one. The other point we've got to bear in mind is the Allies have been used to reading the German mind, in other words, cracking the German codes. Everything is sent by Enigma in ciphering machine in the Third Reich. Um, Bletchley Park and the Allied code-breaking operation there manages to crack a lot of the German messages in June, July, August 1944, and we're used to a steady flow of messages that give us the German intent. The moment you are fighting on your home soil, as the Germans are in September, October, November, they no longer need the Enigma machine to transmit messages because they can do that by dispatch rider, by trusted officer courier. Uh, and so paper replaces wireless transmission. And if we're used to listening for, for wireless messages and cracking them at Bletchley Park, that dries up. So it's partly the Allied uh, perception of what the Germans are up to, partly the signals intelligence just dries up, uh, and partly the, the, ally, the Allies are hoodwinked by the Germans, who know that we're expecting them to be on the defensive, and in fact they're preparing for an attack. So all of those factors add up to really the greatest intelligence failure the Allies suffer in the Second World War. Were there signs or clues missed by aerial reconnaissance, patrols, Bletchley Park, or was it down to a mentality that pervaded throughout the Allied High Command at this time that Germany was a spent force, which meant a lot of these indicators were overlooked? I think it's worth dwelling for a moment on this aspect of the Allied intelligence failure. And it is a mindset, certainly amongst the Allies, that the Germans have been heavily defeated in Normandy. Um, and although the evidence of Arnhem shows that they can fight back, there is still a sense that the Germans have shot their bolt. Most of their combat power is now on the Eastern Front, uh, and it's more terrain and weather that will be against us in the autumn and winter of 1944, but not the German army. They simply don't have the capability uh, to carry on. So it's, it's partly a mindset that we are shot when the Germans suddenly appear. There are certainly clues there, though. There are lower level wireless transmissions between German formation. Uh, this isn't Enigma that can be decoded at Bletchley Park, but local German units just chatting to one another, talking about the, 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 um, the movement of fresh troops. We do understand to a certain extent what's going on because German railways also use Enigma and they are moving lots of fresh units to the Ardennes. To a certain extent, we, yeah, we understand that's to defend the Ardennes, but that still should have rung alarm bells. You don't want lots of panzer divisions opposite you. Um, we didn't ask the sort of questions that we should have done. Why are, we, why are all these German armoured formations um, against us? And the Luftwaffe are also being told to assemble all their aircraft uh, for a major strike against the Allies. That much we pick up, we don't know where or when. So there are lots of clues. Prisoners are taken and they start muttering about offensive in the near future. Well, in isolation, all of these clues 
aren't significant, but if you put them together, then they do spell out a possible German counterattack. And it, this all boils down to how you handle your intelligence. And even today, you get surprises in war, and it's usually because you don't collate your intelligence sources. The more you share information, um, the more you can build up the correct picture. But intelligence gathering is done by people who are quite often prima donnas. They, they love to control their information. And you often find in, in the intelligence world that people are reluctant to share. And that's certainly the case in 1944. It, uh, intelligence is, is certainly personality driven and always has been and always will be. And that's what you're fighting against all the time. And the more secretive your intelligence is, the more you fall into groupthink, because you can't share that with people who can give you another objective point of view. Well, instead of the fact that the Germans are a spent force, uh, what do you think? But because the intelligence is so secretive, you don't want to bring anyone else into that conversation on the Allied side. So that's how we get caught. How important was fuel in the Battle of the Ardennes? OK, well, if we come down to brass tacks, a lot of our perceptions about the Battle of the Bulge comes from a mid-1960s film of the same name. Uh, and a lot of the ideas about the Germans and how they're going to stop revolve around the idea of the German army running out of fuel. The German army will run out of fuel for real in 1944, and it's a real driver for the campaign. How are they going to combat this problem? Hitler never orders his army to advance by capturing American fuel dumps. That makes no sense because uh, you can't rely on that. Tactically on the ground, the three German columns that are, are, are trying to spearhead the advance are going to use captured fuel whenever they can find it. They don't have detailed maps with all the fuel dumps on it. They know that. Uh, they'll use jerry cans, whatever captured fuel they can. Uh, but really, they have to go on their own fuel stocks and what the Germans have in reserve. So this isn't a campaign driven by whether or not you capture American fuel. That is Hollywood myth. We can say, though, that in the winter, with uh, slow going, uh, the paucity of fuel that the Germans do have, it is important. And ultimately, the Germans will run out of fuel. But capturing American stocks of fuel isn't going to ensure success or failure. If you like, it will just prolong the agony. In terms of the American forces holding this stretch of the line, how well prepared and equipped were they to hold off a German attack in this region? When we look at the American defenders, it's certainly the case that uh, several of the divisions there are brand new to combat um, and so are ill-experienced in terms of being at the receiving end of German shell fire or, or German attacks. But we have to remember that every GI who's arrived at the front has trained in the United States for at least a year and in some cases 18 months before he arrives at the front line. He's up against German divisions who are comprised of very young soldiers, some as young as 16, very old soldiers who've escaped the military call up until now, who are in their 40s and sometimes in their 50s, uh, convalescents who've returned from hospital, as well as seasoned veterans. But the quality of training of the German troops is much lower. Um, the youngest soldiers may have only had six weeks. 
uh, many, a great deal of the German formations in the Ardennes attack have only been collected together for a few weeks beforehand. Um, and many of their commanders are brand new, and that includes the Panzer divisions as well. So right across the German attacking armies, uh, there is much less training. Uh, there is complete ignorance of the ground. Uh, there are shortages right across the board of weapons, ammunition, fuel, food, you name it. Uh, and let's be honest, the Germans in 1944, in the Ardennes battle, are fielding more horses than they do tanks. And that comes as a great shock when you think of all the German newsreels that we still look at today, which just show you endless pictures of big tanks like King, King Tigers. They never show the horses, but that's really what the German war machine is still reliant on. One of the things I picked up on in your book, which was very interesting, was the impact of the July bomb plot. Uh, and it's bearing on the outcome of the campaign. How did this impact Hitler's decision-making process for the Ardennes offensive, and ultimately his allocation of forces for the battle? I think it's incredibly important to just bear in mind the after-effects of the 20th of July Stauffenberg plots, when the good Count Klaus von Stauffenberg accidentally on purpose leaves his briefcase in Hitler's headquarters in East Prussia. He doesn't see it coming. He has no knowledge or worries or anticipation of a plot in the, amongst the German army. Uh, and so he's completely flawed. He's very lightly wounded, but mentally it completely screws him up. He's very, very shocked indeed for the next few weeks. He becomes more of a recluse. He becomes more reliant on medicine uh, or spoof medicine. Uh, administered to him by a whole sort of gaggle of, uh, of quacks. Um, he relies far more on people he recognises in his headquarters. He doesn't like outsiders and he doesn't like strangers. Where does that take us? It means he's only going to trust the SS, who are not only his intimate bodyguard, uh, but because of Himmler's crowing about this, the size and efficiency of his large SS army. And by the winter of 1944, the SS is nearly a million strong. So he's going to assign the best jobs in the Ardennes, the, the tip of the, the main panzer thrust that's going to um, get to the River Meuse first, to the SS. So not only do all the plum jobs and objectives go to the Waffen-SS, the fighting element of the SS uh, in the Ardennes, um, they're going to get the lion's share of equipment. They're going to get more tanks than anyone else. They're going to get more fuel. And they're going to get more engineers, which is crucial if you've got a lot of rivers to cross and the Ardennes is full of rivers. So the lion's share of all the assets you need goes to the SS. But they are not necessarily better generals. And the most difficult terrain is also assigned to the SS. So actually, we can say in retrospect that had more engineers, more anti-aircraft units, more tanks being assigned to some of the German army units further south, the 5th Panzer Army, for example, they would, who already, we know, get the furthest. Had they been given a lot of SS equipment, they would have got even further. It doesn't mean they would have won, because I think the thing is doomed to failure. But it does mean that Hitler is now backing the wrong horses. He's backing the SS because of who they are, not how good they are. Having taken over command of the Reserve Army following Stauffenberg's failed coup, had Himmler's recruitment drive given Hitler a false belief that the numbers, quality of troops, 
and equipment at its disposal and ultimately what they were capable of achieving with so little training. If we look at the German armed forces making the Ardennes assault, we've got to remember that after the 20th of July, Himmler really appoints himself as Commander-in-Chief of the Reserve Army, and this is the organisation that Stauffenberg had worked for before the July plot. Uh, and whereas the Reserve Army, which is responsible for ger generating all the reserves that would go to the East or West fronts Germany needs, uh, was generating only a few tens of thousands per month, Himmler ruthlessly plucks out every single spare man that he can from Germany and from German-speaking allies. Uh, so it's really significant that with Himmler at the head of the reserve army, they up the numbers and the vast majority of the two or three hundred thousand ordinary German soldiers who fight in the Ardennes are the result of this hero snatching, that they call it, of finding people who can who are eligible for combat. So the very young Hitler youth um, the very old, so we're talking about um, heads of families uh, who were farming previously. We're talking about a lot of people who are working in industry whose jobs can be replaced either by women uh, or by slave labourers. Uh, a lot of people come from the uh, railways, for example. Um, we're talking about people in the Luftwaffe who have no planes to fly or service, uh, people in the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, who no longer have any ships to look after. So you find a lot of bizarre people like pilots. Um, or sailors, who have no knowledge of combat at all, but they're used to wearing uniform, they're given perhaps three or four weeks to pick up the idea of ground combat. Uh, and if they haven't really paid attention, that's tough, because they're about to be thrown into the Ardennes, but they don't know it. So in summary, what Himmler can produce is numbers. He can give them uniforms, he can give them weapons, so he's got the numbers. But that doesn't guarantee the fact that they are used to combat in any way at all. There's another pool that he raids, which is of people who are German speaking. So they're ethnic Germans. They could be Czechs. They could be Poles. They could be Hungarians, Romanians, you name it. So a lot of these people who've been on the fringes of the Third Reich, who look blonde, who have blue eyes, whatever it is, um, are suddenly drawn into the German war machine and entrusted with being part of a major offensive. And just because they have blonde hair and blue eyes or a Germanic surname or whose ancestors several generations back may once have been German is not going to guarantee that these people are fully signed up members of the Third Reich, much less combat ready soldiers. But they're all thrown into the melting pot, so that's what, two, three hundred thousand. Uh, and if you're sitting in Berlin, you sit up and take notice of those numbers because that re represents more map pins in your map. But the reality of who those people are, where they've come from and how they'll perform is completely different. But Himmler is not worried about that. He's done his job. He's produced the numbers. Uh, if anything goes wrong, that won't be his fault. It'll be down to the tactical leaders who have not performed adequately enough. Given in some cases the lack of experience in short training times, did the MP44 help give the German soldiers the edge and assist in making up for any of these deficiencies in other areas? The Germans do understand that their troops are less combat ready, and they do two things to offset that imbalance. 
One is they reorganise all the German formations, so they have fewer troops in them, but that generates more units, which looks more impressive, both to your commanders and to the enemy. Um, the second thing is they give them more automatic firepower. So that will compensate for fewer people running around carrying rifles. And the epitome of that is the MP44 Sturmgewehr, uh, which translates as assault rifle. That's exactly what it is. And it's the forerunner with its curve magazine of the very well-known Kalashnikov AK-47, which is a direct copy of it. Um, so it's cheaply produced in vast numbers. Uh, it gives you the ability to carry a miniature submachine gun with you into battle. Uh, the downside is you need far more ammunition. But if you're assaulting a, a line of Americans and everybody seems to be carrying a machine gun, uh, A, that's a lot of very good firepower, and B, that really dents the morale of your American opponents. Because if everyone is running at you with a machine gun, the last thing you want to do is hang around and, and argue the toss with them. So it does compensate to a certain extent. The Germans also have a lot of rocket artillery, the Nebelwerfer. So again, they can make up for lack of numbers uh, with greater firepower. Unfortunately, it will soon run out of ammunition. So again, um, you, the Germans do realise that they've got to make up for the inadequate training they have. In the accounts I've read, and including your own book, uh, one of the things I've come across is references to German soldiers' drug use or drinking during the Ardennes Offensive. Was this a common occurrence? The Germans, right at the beginning of the Second World War, have used a drug called pervitin, which has been developed before the Second World War. Um, it dulls the appetite, it keeps you awake for a long period of time, and that's great for combat troops. Um, it is used amongst uh, the elite uh, paratroopers and things like that in uh, the first few days of the 1940 Blitzkrieg, tank crews also, air crew, um, and it's used in 1944. Now, it's not enough to say that the Germans are hyped up on drugs. A few Germans will have taken this, but as any user of narcotics will know, that may um, increase your ability to uh, cope with the stress of combat for a few days, and it will keep you awake for that length of time. The downside is what happens at the end of it, you get an enormous downer. So it's all very well feeding your troops in the advanced wave drugs, uh, but sooner or later they're going to flop down and be quite incapable of doing anything else. So it's a double-edged sword, and it works as much against the Germans as it does work for them. And to be honest, the Allies are using drugs for their aircrew anyway. So this is a uh, an era where both sides are experimenting with what narcotics can do for the body, uh, and you get a short-term gain, but it's going to work against both sides. So if we talk about German drug use in the Ardennes. It's of limited value, and the Germans can't actually make enough tablets to distribute amongst all their troops anyway. So these are there are isolated examples of German drug use, and it really doesn't help them that much. But if we are thinking about drug use by Germans, probably the most significant drug use is by Hitler himself. And he's surrounded by this body of yes-men in the bunkers in which he lives. So his complete sense of reality has gone. And, you know, he wakes up at midday and goes to sleep in the early hours. So even his sort of eating, sleeping, deciding cycle is different from most of the rest of the world. Uh, and he's in poor health 
Uh, he has stomach complaints. He doesn't sleep well. And he, have se he has several doctors who give him um, different medical prescriptions, some of which clash with each other. Adolf Hitler has also been given very mild doses of cocaine in the autumn of 1944. So the most significant drug use in the Third Reich in the run-up to the Battle of the Bulge is that being taken by the Fuhrer. And I would argue that that's why his judgment is impaired, because there's no leader on this planet who in 1944 would have advocated undertaking what becomes the Ardennes assault. And the very fact that Hitler is under heavy drug use by that time, to me, suggests that his judgment is impaired through narcotics administered him for, to him for medical reasons. Uh, and that's why the assault takes place, because it makes no sense under any other circumstances. We hope you found this first part of our conversation with Peter of interest. A big thank you for listening. Coming up in the next episode, we'll be looking at the tough winter conditions and how men on both sides cope with this. We'll also be discussing the impact of terrain in the Ardennes, the fierce fighting in the opening day of the Battle of the Bulge, and looking at the infamous town of Bastogne and its role in the battle, as well as much, much more.